0: Hello there and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. Today we are looking at the first part of chapter 4 in Philippians, and today's episode is entitled The Women of Philippians. Last week we talked about the thesis statement of Paul's letter to the Philippians, and it's found in chapter 1, verse 6. Paul writes, I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is writing from prison that he believes that life is good and is getting better. This is a statement of faith followed by a statement of hope. And when we read Paul's letter to the Philippians, we are impressed by how positive positive how uplifting it is. In fact, it might be the most positive book of the entire Bible. The reason this letter is so positive is because the prison system in Paul's day did not provide food for its own prisoners. Therefore, the prisoners were dependent on people outside bringing them food or sending them money so that the prisoners could purchase food. The church in Philippi heard that Paul was in jail and therefore sent money to Paul so that he could buy food. And so Philippians is a thank you letter to the congregation who remembered him while he was in prison. So we read chapter one and it's positive. We read chapter two and it's more positive. And we read chapter three and it's even more positive, which brings us to chapter four, where Paul begins to wrap up his thank you letter to the Philippians. Philippians. He writes in verse one, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syndechy to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you also, my loyal companion, help these women, for they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my co workers, whose names are in the book of life paul wraps up his letter to the philippians by addressing two women euodia and Syntyche. and he asks these women to get along and come to a resolution on their problems quickly and then cites to the rest of the philippians that these two women have worked diligently and struggled beside me in the work of the gospel now this is stunning news to me because I have been part of a church and church work for several years now. And the reason why this is stunning is because I have often heard the words of Paul about women used to oppress, belittle, and hold women's progress back. One of the biggest debates in the evangelical church today is whether or not female pastors can be ordained the same as male pastors. And almost always, when people are arguing against women's ordination, They cite the words of Paul over and over again to validate their opinion that women are inferior in the work of the gospel. And so here's Paul in Philippians with a little-known passage where he addresses women and says that these women are my equals in the work of the gospel. So is Paul actually against women's ordination or women's rights or women's equality? What did Paul really feel about women, and how did he view them? Did he see them as his equal, or did he see them as inferior? Because when you consider who Paul is, Paul has a tremendous amount of influence within the Christian world. After all, Paul wrote 12 books of the Bible, more than any other author And just by that sheer volume alone, we can deduce that Paul has more influence in our biblical understanding of God than anyone else. So what did Paul actually believe about women? And how did he see women in his day and age? In order to answer that question, I'd like for us to look at six different passages, all from the writings of Paul. And as we look at these six different passages, I have invited six different women to read these passages, and then share their honest, heartfelt reaction to these passages. So with that in mind, I'd like to begin with Kanda Lodge, who is an elder at Paradox, and she will be reading from the book of Romans.
1: Um, Romans 16:1 through 7 and it says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Kentre, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints, and help her in whatever she may require from you. For she has been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. Greet Priscilla and Aqu- Aquila who work with me in Christ Jesus and who risk their necks for my life to whom I not only give thanks but to all the churches of the Gentiles. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved, my beloved Epanetus who, who was the first convert in Asia for Christ. Greet Mary who has worked very hard among you. Andronicus and Junia, my relatives, who were in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. So, I read this, and I, my first reaction was, oh, Paul's saying something nice about women. That's unfamiliar. So, <laughs> definitely my first thought. Um, reading through this, I appreciated, like, wow, opening a a little specific letter opening where Paul is pointing out not only specific women's names, which isn't as common, um, but also acknowledging very specific things that they did and um, their judgment, affirming their judgment that they have, you know, they have put in effort that they, when he says about Phoebe, Give her whatever help she might need from you, she knows what to do with it basically, and that that surprised me for sure. Um, I think what came up next was, how come I never hear about this? why didn 't I you know get to see lots of Bible character books with Phoebe walking around being cool you know as a kid and <laughs> I mean, unless you're, you know, and I thought about it, and was like, okay, maybe in some, like, obscure Pathfinder Bible trivia moment, like, who is a woman who did a good job? You don't know? It's because no one's been telling you about it. But um, I do appreciate that Paul specifically names women in several in this section of verses that, who are not attached to a man. That He's not just naming all of them, are not just couples as well. So that was was good. Um, I appreciated that. But uh, yeah, it did make me reflect on when we think about Paul and all the Paul I've ever heard quoted in my whole life. This is definitely not one that came to the forefront of my mind.
0: And now we'll hear from Alyssa Jung, one of our podcast listeners from afar.
2: Okay, so I'll be reading 1 Corinthians 11, 2 verses through 7. So it says... I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions just as I handed them on to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the husband is the the head of his wife, and God is the head of Christ. Any man who prays or prophesies with something on his head disgraces his head, but any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled disgraces her head. It is one and the same thing as having her head shaved. For a woman will not veil herself, then she should cut off her hair. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or to be shaved, she should wear a veil. For a man ought to not have his head veiled, since he is the image and reflection of God. But woman is the reflection of man. So there were two things that stood out to me. Um, Sorry, I'm a little nervous. (laughs) So there were two things that stood out to me in this verse, and the first was being, well, it seems like there's an implied hierarchy system here of God, Christ, man, woman. And being a 21-year-old female in 2019, I don't believe men are up here and women are below them. So the second thing that, um, I'm just gonna put this down. (laughs) So the second thing that really stood out to me was, well, this kind of reminds me of the Islamic religion because a lot of women in this religion wear um, head coverings. And I was like, oh, this makes sense because it says so right here that women should cover their heads. And it's so clear. So if there's such a clear statement, then why don't more religions participate in this practice? And so I got to thinking, well, I read this book recently and it's, it talks about how to read Ellen White and it gives tips and suggestions suggestions to the reader on how to read her writings so that you can gain more understanding and meaning from her writings. And for those of you who are really familiar with her writings, you know that she's quite, some of her statements can be controversial and open to interpretation. So when I finished reading this book, I gained three points from, these, from this book. It was, the first, study each statement in its literary context. Second, take time and place into consideration. And third, use common sense. So, <laughs> so I looked at this verse and I was like, "Well, it doesn't really, um, it, it's not really with my own values and with what I thought the Bible would value." So I looked at these principles and I applied them. Well, take each statement in its literary context. Well, we have to ask who wrote this, Paul. Who was it written to? I'm not really sure. Why did he write it? And then you have to ask time and place. The Bible was written hundreds of years ago and say if this was a common practice, perhaps it's just outdated today. I mean, a lot of Ellen G. White's writings are outdated today, such as she says don't buy a bicycle. I mean, obviously that's not really practical today. And then my last, and my favorite, is use common sense. So I'm sure many of us can relate, but wearing a head covering on our head throughout the entire day doesn't seem very practical, especially, I'm sure for us ladies in the morning, I don't know about you, but I like to just wake up, I take a shower, I brush my hair, and go. If I had to think about doing all this wrapping around my head, it just seems very impractical, and also, Um, The stuff I do throughout the day, I like to go exercising, I'll run to the grocery store, I'll do all these chores. It just doesn't seem very practical to have a head covering. And also it seems kind of uncomfortable. So I don't think God wants to, values or wants us to be uncomfortable. So when I read verses such as the one stated, I have to ask myself, well... What do I do with these verses that seem to contradict my own values and beliefs that the Bible indicate to me? And I have to ask myself, well, is there perhaps more meaning underneath? And am I just looking at the tip of the iceberg, or is there perhaps an understanding and symbolism indicated?
0: And now we'll hear from Bev Ching, one of our longtime supporters and members at Paradox.
2: I have 1 Corinthians 14,
3: 34 to 35. Women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they should be subordinate, as the law also says. Is there, if there is anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. So, <laughs> here I am. So Craig asked me to talk about how I felt about this when I read it. It was an immediate trigger into my past. Um, I'm older than these kids are, and we never saw a woman on the platform in church, We're never allowed to speak. The father was the head of the household. You were obedient. You couldn't ask questions. There was no discussion. And that trigger has stayed with me all these years. There's a lot of things I remember. you have to sit in church in a certain order, you have to be on time, all these things that make church seem very negative, everything about the religion and about Jesus. And I know that's from all of my years of experience, I know that's not exactly what he intended it to be, Um, which brings on sadness and depression and you're second guessing yourself and how you feel because you can't speak something that's inside you to share because you're not allowed. And now, going forward in this day and age and with Craig's church, the openness, the feeling of joy, your, your mental health, everything's, we're in, we're in a good place, and thank you.
0: And now Judy Brower, who is one of our most faithful attendees at Paradox.
4: My text was Galatians 3.28, <clears throat> and um, when I told my husband I was going to be doing this, he said, well, what's a progressive text that Paul wrote? And this would be considered a progressive text. (laughs) There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And I think that is a beautiful concept. And the Christian church has completely and totally failed at that. And I'm going to focus on (laughs) male and female. And I think that stories are very, very, very important, and how you tell stories are important. And the first story in the Bible of creation, the creation of Adam and Eve, and we all know how the story went. Eve was made from used parts. God could not be bothered in the story to make her fresh. She who would carry children in her body was made second. That's a story that needs to be changed, because in my understanding of the divine, Eve was made from fresh parts. And she was made first, because she was going to be the mother of humanity. So we need to change that story. We need to tell our little boys and our little girls a new story, because language matters and stories matter. In the 12th century, after Paul wrote this, 12 centuries after Paul wrote this, 60 to 100 million women were killed in witch trials. It is called in women's literature the burning times or the woman's holocaust. How many of you have studied this? How many of you have heard about this? Part of, there was a manual on how to torture women. And that manual stated that rape was not torture, it was the right of the accusers. We need to change how we view women. In Numbers 5, 11 to 31, there is a law called the law of a man's jealousy. It is the record of forced abortion on women. How do we tell that story? How do we change that story? So one day, 10 years ago, I was sitting in church. And my soul spoke to me so loudly, I couldn't ignore it. And it said, if you stay here, your soul will die. So I got up and walked out. And I became a goddess worshiper. And I found the feminine divine. I found, rather than a dry religion, a moist, wet religion. I stand in worship with women, I hold hands in worship with women who have dreams, they have visions, they have seen angels. And when we stand and we hold hands and we ask the divine goddess to come down within our circle, she does. Now, that is not the answer either. The divine masculine and the divine feminine need to join, and when they join in the universe, fire and sparks explode within worship services. And if we're only worshiping in the Christian church, the male God, we have a dry, a intelligent religion, but a dry religion. And if we only worship goddess with a moist, wet religion of experience, a Pentecostal experience, that's all we have. We don't have knowledge as much, so we need to change our stories. We need to look at myths and legends. We need to rewrite a new religion that where men and women are not different in Christ. We have the same divine soul within our bodies. And that's the hope that I see in churches like Paradox who are taking this a difficult step to try and figure out how we do that. And I really believe that men and women Corporate worship is good, but they need to worship separately to discover who they are. Because women experience religion in their bodies. They experience their bleeding times within their bodies. They experience birth within their bodies. They experience the end of bleeding times within their bodies. How can they not experience religion within their bodies? And when we can bring those two beautiful male and female divine into worship experience, There will be an explosion of fire and feeling that the world has never seen.
0: And now we will hear from Erica Ariza, who is a regular attendee at Paradox Church.
5: All right, I got lucky. (laughs) I got (laughs) Ephesians 5, 22 to 28. Wives, be subject to your husbands, as you are to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church the body of which he is the Savior. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, so as to present the church to himself in splendor, without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind, yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. <laughs> uh, at first, when my earliest memories of understanding this text, I, I hated it. Um, then in college, I, I took a Pauline class that was taught by a woman. And it, I hated it a little less. <laughs> um, then, I just hate it because of how it's often used to put women under men's power. The hierarchy of God, woman, I'm sorry, God, man, then woman. I don't need or want a man between me and God. And as I read this text and reflected on it this week, uh, the analogy of church as woman and Christ as man was really hard to swallow When I think about how the church is written about in the Bible, it's usually having to do with the church going astray, losing sight of the mission, getting everything wrong. But Jesus, on the other hand, he's written about as perfect. He's our savior, wise, righteous, our teacher. So all men are like Jesus, perfect, and women are like the church, a mess, (laughs) It just feels so far from my experience and reality. It's an unfair comparison. And because, I mean, we're all a mess, all of us. No one's mess makes them greater or less than another. None of us can be mediators between God and another human, regardless of gender. That's the gospel. We all have equal access to God. No need for hierarchy or patriarchy. Also, Anything gendered is suspect for me, especially in scripture.
0: And lastly, we'll hear from Deidre Constampos, who is one of our regular attendees and members at Paradox.
6: So the scripture that was given to me was 1 Timothy 2 8 to 15, and it says, I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument also that women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing, not with their hair braided or with gold pearls or expensive clothes, but with good works as is proper for women who profess reverence for God. Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over men. She is to keep silent, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, yet she'll be saved through childbearing, provided they continue to faith in faith and love and holiness with modesty. And I felt like a big oof when I read this verse for the first time. I'm like, okay, what, what, what can I not say about this? Um, there were lots of prickly points that stood out for me when I read this, and the thing that came most to the surface was remembering myself growing up, in my growing up experience in the church, where I felt that even though adornment was supposed to be a certain way, it was also utilized as a mask, uh, to mask feelings of vulnerability, of truthfulness. Um, There's a lot of implicit teaching of being silent, a silent learner, and what that looked like. I soaked it up as a child. Um, It was, I really felt in my spirit that our bodies and the way that we move should be and our actions should be a reflection of Christ's love. That's what we were called to do. This is what I believed. But it wasn't, there was no space to share my opinions, to share my thoughts. Um, I I was able to cultivate that mask in order to protect myself, to feel invulnerable and putting away my thoughts and opinions. And as you might imagine, this played into my beliefs about self-worth and personal value. It led me to make myself smaller and uh, made me to, it had wanted to remain under authority to make others more comfortable than myself. Now, bearing a child has the absolute opposite physical effect of getting smaller. I personally count it an honor and a privilege to walk and support families through the childbearing year and it, I witness it as a powerful and transformative season for women or people who bear children as well. Yet, when a person's salvation or redemption or value is only placed on what, or in this case, who this person can produce, it sounds like it could either be a best selling book or maybe a hit show, maybe on Hulu. Um, but this time, as, as, as it totally surprised me, but at this time, it, lots of questions came to the service for me like, what would religion and spiritual learning look like if? all spaces weren't just governed by the authority but there was space for women especially to discuss and understand and practice form and reform and even embody their learning about religion and spirituality out loud how could it really influence the all of the things and all of the people how might we all be able to see each other from a different perspective really truly letting and understanding helping people to lay down their mask to be their most vulnerable selves so we can truly walk in each other's path. Thank you.
0: Six different passages read by six different women with six different reactions. I'd like to talk a little bit about the context and the location of these writings. And what I'm about to do is begin to exercise in apologetics. Now, apologetics is a big theological word. And if you look up the definition in the dictionary, apologetics is reasoned arguments or writings in justification of something, typically a theory or religious doctrine. So when I dive into these six passages, I'm going to talk about the context because I think that it brings a different depth or element to the story of what Paul felt about women. And this is an exercise in apologetics. So let's begin with Romans chapter 16. This is the one that Canda read that talked about the different leaders of women in the church that took her by surprise. Now, if you look closely at Romans 16 verse 1 and we read the NIV version, we read these words of Paul. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Centuria. Now, the Bible and specifically the words of Paul here are written originally in Greek. So everything that we read in English is a translation of the original Greek manuscripts. So the word servant for Phoebe is translated from the Greek word diokonos. Now Paul used diokonos to describe other people who partnered with him in the work of the gospel. If you look at another letter of Paul's, the writings of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 7, he writes, You learned it from Epiphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful diokonos of Christ on our behalf. It's here that diokonos is translated not as servant, but as minister. And so the English translators read about a male person who is working beside Paul, and Paul describes as diokonos and translates it as minister and those same translators read about a female coworker in the gospel, Phoebe, who is described as diokonos by Paul, and diokonos in Romans is translated as servant. Now, what's interesting about this conundrum is that Paul gets blamed for sexism when it is the translator who is, in fact, sexist. Now, this brings us to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 7, about head coverings and veils and all of these weird things that Alyssa referenced in her verse. Now, when we read 1 Corinthians 11, 5, we read about this weird ritual. Any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled disgraces her head. It is one and the same thing as having her head shaved. These are strange words for us in 2019. But 2,000 years ago, these words meant something very different. The great Dr. Sarah Rudin wrote a book called Paul Among the People. And in this book, she writes about what this verse means and how it is different than our American culture today. Sarah Rudin writes, The veil in Paul's day was the flag of female virtue, status, and security. So only women who were married in Paul's day were able to wear a veil, Or if someone was a widow, they were able to wear a veil. Not only that, but the veil was reserved for the economically advantaged. Therefore, if you were to have any kind of public gathering with women, what would happen is you could easily differentiate between the married rich elite from those who were poor, unmarried, and were prostitutes. So Paul here in 1 Corinthians is talking about how every woman who prophesies, every woman who stands up and speaks, gets to wear a veil. And so the Corinthian church is a place where every woman gets to wear the veil, and the Corinthian church is all of a sudden a place for great female equality amongst themselves. Now this may sound like a step backwards morally to us today, and I will tell you it is. It is a giant step backwards on our moral spectrum. But for Paul's day and age, we have to remember that this was actually a step forward for equality in Paul's culture. Not only that, but Paul never intended for us to read the letter to the Corinthians. Hence the title, the letter to the Corinthians. <laughs> Paul didn't to sit down and say, I'm gonna write a moral code that lasts for all time, no. Paul wrote a specific letter to the Corinthian church about a specific problem and offered them a solution. And for Paul's day and age, this was a moral step forward, even though it's a moral step backwards by our day. This brings us to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that Bev read earlier about how women should be silent in churches. Obviously, this is one of the verses that is championed by people who oppose women's ordination and it's important for us to acknowledge and to look at. Now, I have to tell you that there are a lot of scholars who disagree as to whether or not Paul actually wrote these words, and the reason for that is because in the original Greek manuscripts that we have, this passage appears in two different places depending on the manuscript you're looking at. So therefore, scholars believe that someone added these words later. However, Sarah Rudin, who I trust as well, would disagree with that, and she thinks that Paul actually wrote it. But she still finds something of value in these words. And to give you that perspective, Sarah Rudin references the ancient Olympic Games. And when she writes about the ancient Olympic Games, she says, a married woman or widow caught in the stands of the Olympics was subject to the death penalty. Therefore, Sarah Rudin argues, This was remarkable because while women were being told that they needed to be silent in churches, the fact is that women were there, and women being allowed to be in the same public space as men is a remarkable achievement for Greco-Roman culture 2,000 years ago. This simply didn't happen and often was met with the death penalty— So yeah, women were being told to be silent, Sarah Rudin says, but ultimately they were allowed to be in public with men. So this is a step forward for Paul's morality of his day and age, but it's a giant step backwards by our standards today. This brings us to the writings in Galatians chapter 3, verses 28, when Paul says, there is no longer Jew or Greek, no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Paul had this understanding that if Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, then there is no separation over socioeconomic borders, racial borders, or gender borders. This is such a big deal that Karen Armstrong, who is quite a liberal historian, a British historian, picks up on this in her book, St. Paul the Apostle We Love to Hate. She writes, in Paul's congregations, there seem to have been roughly as many male as female leaders since in Christ, gender equality as well as class and ethnic equity was mandatory. So when Karen Armstrong reads Galatians, which is one of Paul's earliest letters, the thesis statement, the point of that letter is to say that we have found equality in Christ. This is a step forward for Paul's day as well as our day. And this is one of the greatest verses in all of Scripture. Which brings us to Ephesians 5, which Erica read just a few moments ago. Ephesians 5, 22, 25, and 28 read, Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. I recently read a fantastic book by Rachel Held Evans called Inspired, which came out last year. Now, in this book, Rachel Held Evans does a fantastic job of being able to place writings in historical context. She does this by telling fictitious anecdotes about what it would have been like to hear these words for the first time. So in Inspired, she tells an anecdote about a young woman living in Greco-Roman culture hearing these words from Paul. And the words from Paul begin by talking about how wives should submit to their husbands. And this young woman reacts with just kind of boredom or apathy, saying like, yeah, yeah, we know there's all these household codes that we live with. And this is what is expected of women, that we should submit to our husbands. But Paul doesn't end there. Because Paul then speaks to the husbands and says, husbands, you must love your wife. Now it's here that the young woman perks up and pays attention. She thinks to herself, this is different. None of the household codes we live with speak of husbands loving their wives. She continues to think about what these words means. While some wealthy couples marry for love, most marriages are arranged, often when the girls are just children. The Roman Empire requires little from the male head of house besides allegiance to the state and control over his home. And so along comes Paul And Paul says, actually, we're going to ask for more from the husbands. Husbands, you can't just own and keep your wife under control. You have to learn how to love your wife. So this is, once again, a step forward for Paul's morality and a giant step backward by our moral standards today. Now, it's here that you may say, well, Craig, come on. (laughs) Come on. Shouldn't Paul just stand up and say that women are equal to men? Because this seems like a minor victory to me. To which I would respond to you, I understand that. And yes, it can be incredibly frustrating. But at the same time, you're asking Paul to be someone he is not. You're asking Paul to act like he has some moral consciousness from 2019 and understands women's rights to the best of our abilities today. Paul can't do that because Paul cannot be divorced from his culture. And so he fights for women's equality within his context and his culture. And that's what led to the words being written in the Bible that we have today. Now, if you want something better than Paul, I would encourage you to read a book of the Bible called Song of Songs, which is also known as Song of Solomon. The reason I would encourage you to read that book is because that book was most likely written by a female. And this book is most likely the only book of the Bible written by a female. And this young woman who wrote this book grew up in a culture that told her that her only purpose was to be owned by a man because she understood the definition of marriage to be that women are property. And so she lives in this culture where men own women. They don't see women as anything more than a piece of property to be owned. And she responds with this incredible poem that fights the patriarchy and says marriage can be so much more. In this poem, she writes these words, my beloved is mine and I am his. And she also writes, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. She is light years ahead of where Paul is morally. Of course she would be because she's been the sufferer from the system. And her words in Song of Solomon are ultimately words that still project what healthy marriage is today. This idea of mutual submission anchored in love. With that in mind, we turn to our last passage written by Paul that we looked at. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. In there, Paul writes, women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing, not with their hair braided or with gold pearls or expensive clothes, but with good works as is proper for women who profess reverence for God. Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. These are some terrible sexist words but they most likely are not written by Paul. For that, we return to the words of Karen Armstrong in her book, St. Paul, the Apostle We Love to Hate. She writes, Only seven of Paul's epistles are judged by scholars to be authentic. 1 Thessalonians, Galatians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Philemon, and Romans. She continues to write, The rest, Colossians, Ephesians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, and Titus, known as the Deuteropauline letters, were written in his name after his death, some as late as the 2nd century. I have read or met very few scholars who believe that Paul wrote 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy has some of the most problematic theology in all of the New Testament. And while it is attributed to Paul, there is a very slim to non-existent chance that he actually wrote those words. And while these words are still in the Bible, when we're asking the question, what does Paul actually believe about women? How does Paul actually see women? It's important for us to acknowledge that Timothy, 1 Timothy, was most likely not written by him and therefore shouldn't have any weight when it comes to how we try and understand how Paul viewed and saw women in his day and age. So with that, we've gone through all six passages, including the seventh passage of Philippians, talking about how Paul viewed women as equal co-workers in the gospel of Christ. And we have gone through an exercise in apologetics. And as you have been listening to these apologetics, you may have cringed a little bit because a question probably formed in your mind. Why do these apologetics feel like mansplaining? Now, if you don't know what mansplaining is, I was delighted to find out that you can look up mansplain in the new Oxford American Dictionary. Mansplain is to explain something to someone, typically a woman, in a manner regarded as condescending or patronizing. So the question on the table is why does Craig's apologetics feel like mansplaining? Now, we're going to answer that question in a minute, but we have to talk about a few things and a few facts that we must acknowledge as true. The first one is this. The writings attributed to Paul in the Bible have a wildly variable opinion on women. In fact, you can divide the six passages that we read into categories of equality or misogyny. The equality verses being Romans 16, Galatians 3, and Philippians chapter 4. The passages that fall under the category of misogyny are 1 Corinthians 11 and 14, Ephesians 5, and 1 Timothy 2. Now it's important for us to recognize the difference and the divide between these two groups of passages. They are so vastly different that it causes a person who is reading these passages to ask a question. Well, which one is it? Should we treat women as people who are equal in the eyes of Christ? Or was Paul serious when he was saying actually women are inferior to men in the eyes of Christ and within the social order? What do we do when the Bible contradicts itself? Well, to answer that question, I'd like to turn to a book called The Year of Living Biblically by an author named A.J. Jacobs. Now, A.J. Jacobs is a Jew, but he is also an atheist. And in the book, The Year of Living Biblically, he talks about his Jewish heritage. He says, I'm about as Jewish as the Olive Garden is Italian, which is a fantastic way to describe oneself. So he decides that after hearing about how important the Bible is, he's going to try to live for a year as biblically as possible. So he reads through all of the Bible and writes down all of the rules and tries his best to follow all of them for one whole year. And A.J. Jacobs goes for it. To give you an idea of how much he goes for it, he actually carries around a portable seat with him so as to avoid sitting on the same seat that a menstruating woman sat on prior to him. He also wears sandals and clothing that is all of the same material. He wears a prayer box around his head. He does not shave his beard as to keep the corners of his head unshaved. He does all of these things and people give him strange looks. At one point, he comes across the commandment that says, you shall stone adulterers. And he doesn't want to kill anyone who's cheated on their spouse. So he decides he's going to carry a bag of pebbles around. And once someone confesses to him that they've cheated on their spouse, he will just throw a pebble at them and that will keep the law. It's a fantastic book, and after a year of trying to live as biblically as possible, he wraps up his book by saying these words. There's a phrase called cafeteria Christianity, and it's a derisive term used by fundamentalist Christians to describe moderate Christians. The idea is that the moderates just pick and choose the parts of the Bible they want to follow. They take a nice helping of mercy and compassion, but the ban on homosexuality, well, the moderates leave that on the countertop. He then goes on to say, the year of living biblically showed me beyond a doubt that everyone practices cafeteria religion. In other words, we all pick and choose with our religion, don't we? Now, I was told as I was growing up that picking and choosing was a sin. But what I found out later is that we all pick and choose. It is impossible to follow every biblical command and i have met people who have tried but they would even admit to me that they have fallen short of keeping every law in the bible we all pick and choose i have found that it is not a sin to pick and choose rather the sin comes from not admitting that we all pick and choose when someone stands up and says, Well, I don't pick and choose with my religion, my only response is, Yes, you do. Yes, you do, because we all pick and choose. Now, this is fundamental to trying to understand our question and our answer as to why apologetics feel like mansplaining. Because when we consider the church and what the church throughout all of church history has represented, the church has picked and has chosen. And when you look at the writings of Paul and the fact that some have fallen under the category of misogyny and the other writings of Paul have fallen under the categories of equality, what happens is we recognize that the church has picked, has chosen, and the church continually picked misogyny. The church repeatedly chose sexism. And so when we look at these six verses and I rush in with apologetics and answers and why Paul was writing for his context and all these things, it feels like mansplaining because it ignores the overwhelming amount of picking and choosing the church has done to oppress, belittle, hold down and tell women they are less than men. So we can spend all kinds of days talking about what Paul originally meant and how Paul wasn't that bad of guy, and we can rush to defend his reputation. But if it ignores the pain and the suffering the church has caused in Paul's name, well, then it feels like mansplaining. My brothers and sisters, we have to acknowledge the pain that the church has caused toward women with the words of Paul. In other words, the church needs less apologetics and more apologies. And to all my sisters who are listening to this podcast, as a representative of the church, may I offer these words to you. I'm sorry. The church has ignored the words of women's equality in the Bible. And instead, we picked and we chose the words of misogyny. I'm sorry that we don't ordain women in the universal church. I'm sorry for the pain the church has caused And for the fact that the church has refused to see the image of the divine in you as equal to the image of the divine in men. What the church has participated in is misogyny. And I am sorry for this sin. The church must change. As Karen Armstrong wrote, in Christ, gender equality as well as class and ethnic equity is mandatory. And when you consider those words and what Paul was writing in Galatians chapter 3, we have this idea that once we get to heaven, sexism and misogyny will finally be solved. And because we have this idea, people often view gender equality as an ancillary or extracurricular activity of the gospel. Rather than the gospel itself. But Jesus believed with all of his being that we could work toward heaven on earth right now. And if we take Jesus seriously in that endeavor, then what that means is that gender equality is the gospel. This is not an extra thing that we do, this is the thing. And anytime anyone, regardless of their religion, works toward the equality of all genders, well, then they are working toward the kingdom of God. Gender equality is the gospel. So with that in mind, I'd like to share a few things that we can do going forward to work toward the kingdom of God here on earth. Because gender equality is the gospel, we must ordain women. And while you may look at Paradox and say, well, Paradox has said that they ordain women and they ordain men as equals, what I would say to you is ordaining women begins when men are willing to listen to women speak and read books written by women. So to my brothers, I have a question I would like to ask you. How do you give women and the female voice authority in your life? Because gender equality is the gospel, we must talk about abortion. Now, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but every pregnancy in the world involves a female body. You cannot divorce a pregnancy from the female body. Therefore, whenever we talk about abortion, we also must talk about how it impacts the female body. And women understand the female body much better than men, and I will cite all of world history for that. The reason I bring this up is because abortion always involves a female body. And we may have very different opinions on abortion and what it means and when it's okay and when it's not. But one thing I think we can all agree on is that women are the authority on the morality of abortion. Women should be in positions of power where they can make decisions as to when abortion is moral and when it is immoral because there are cases where abortion is reprehensible and there are cases where abortion is necessary. Women are the authority on the morality of abortion. To my Christian brothers out there, stand down. Allow women to decide what is okay and not okay with this practice because every pregnancy involves a female body. Women are the authority on the morality of abortion. Because gender equality is the gospel, we must talk about purity culture. Purity culture is championed by American evangelical Christianity. And what we have found over the past several decades is that purity is misogyny. If you don't believe me, Think for a minute about all of the names that we use to describe a woman who has had multiple sexual partners. Society uses words like slut, whore, and even promiscuous, which I've never heard used to describe a man. Conversely, think of the names that society uses to describe men who have multiple sexual partners. Pimp, player, or even mac daddy, which I believe is straight from 2002. Purity culture is misogyny because it always places the emphasis on the woman's sexual history being tied to her worth. We must leave this behind. And instead, we have to change our words and our understanding of what is moral from a Christian standpoint in terms of sexuality to something else. The church must discard our purity culture and replace it with a culture of consent. Because while purity is misogyny, consent is equality. And the Christian church should be the best place to talk about and teach about and learn about consent and what it means and why it's important and how it's rooted in the very fabric of divine love. Consent is... Is equality. And lastly, because gender equality is the gospel, we must speak about birth control. Without a doubt, the biggest opponent to access for birth control for all Americans is the Christian church. The church classically opposes birth control based around two passages in Genesis. The first is God's first commandment to humanity, which is to be fruitful and multiply. And the second is a much lesser-known story revolving around a man named Onan. In Genesis, we read that Onan was required by God to impregnate his brother's widow. So Onan decides that he will have sex with his brother's widow. He is having sex with her, and right before he climaxes, he pulls out and spills his seed on the ground. This makes God so angry that God kills Onan immediately. And how the Christian church interprets this today is that sex is never to be for pleasure, but only for procreation. Therefore, birth control is a sin in God's eyes and should not be provided by Christian health providers or Christian health insurance companies. But who suffers the most from this decision? It is unquestionably women. Because I'm sure that you know this, but after conception, The woman goes through a lot more changes than her male partner. And what studies have shown again and again and again is that birth control is tied directly to a woman's economic independence. And when women have economic independence, they have power over their own lives and future. The reason I tell you this is because birth control empowers women. And the church is the one who tries to take birth control away. So the work of giving birth control to people, both men and women, is the work of the gospel. Because gender equality is the gospel. So my brothers and sisters, when you find someone rushing to the defense of Paul and talking about why we should still listen to Paul, even though his words are difficult to read at times, May we stop, remind ourselves of the pain the church has caused by picking and choosing misogyny over equality throughout our history. May we then remind ourselves that gender equality is the gospel. And may we believe that the kingdom of heaven can be experienced now and it begins by us working toward gender equality with radical and bold steps. May you see and embrace the image of the divine feminine in all.